welcome to Don't You Want Me, a podcast series taking a light-hearted look at the most relatable, intriguing and dysfunctional relationships in film. I'm Rich. I'm Kat. You ever been in love? I'm in love. Since when? About half an hour ago. It's great. I feel restless and I'm dizzy. It's wonderful. I don't get any sleep tonight. That sounds more like indigestion. Tonight we'll be having a kickabout with the 1980 coming-of-age romantic comedy Gregory's Girl. Written and directed by Bill Forsyth, this is a film with a small budget and a huge legacy. How does it tackle the course of true love? What does it say about the goals of adolescent romance? Which ideas still bounce more than 40 years on from its release? To help us answer these vinegar-soaked questions is master of pop Ian McDermott, host of one of our favourite podcasts, Back to Now. If you enjoy this episode, please leave a rating and a review as it really helps the podcast reach more people. Modern girls, modern boys. Hey Ian, so great to have you here. Thank you so much, Kat. It is, it is lovely to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about your relationship to Gregory's Girl? Oh my goodness. Where do you begin? Um... <laughs> This is one of these films that actually feels like it's been in my DNA forever. I was, I would have been about eight or so when this was released. Um, I didn't see it when it was released, but we saw it very soon afterwards. And I, I grew up in a west of Scotland new town. So anybody that's seen Gregory's Girl, basically that just looks like a documentary of our life, um, <laughs> to be honest. Um, those housing estates, the school, all of those things. And it's just one of these films that is completely quotable all the way through. I, th- I think what was important for us as well is that it was a film that wasn't particularly glamorous. Um, mm. It wasn't particularly uh, aimed at Hollywood. Um, it wasn't leaning even towards London or anything like that. This And, and all of these things were good because, you know, because it, um, it very much looked like our world and the characters spoke like people we knew and and yeah it's it's just always been there one of the things i noticed from watching it this time and again coming from a slightly different angle and and as ian said the way it looks and the way it feels um it reminded me of like a real life scottish version of peanuts and the, mm. the music and the kind of relationships and the way the characters move around the school and they have a you know a, a central character who's somewhat awkward and trying around the ladies and it just kind of reminded me of that and watching it this time and I had the score of the film in my head so I sat there thinking yeah this is very Vince Guaraldi isn't it yeah it is and mm. I'm so glad you mentioned the soundtrack because it's 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 I'm almost on a personal mission to try and get it re-released because <laughs> um the composer um a guy called Colin Tully the music is just so intrinsic to everything that's in it um, and yeah. it's, as you say, Rich, it's almost that kind of, it's like kind of TV themed jazz music, <laughs> you know, and again, I don't mean that in a bad way, you know, it's, it is, it just kind of soundtracks the whole film wonderfully and um, yeah, it's never been released. I've got, I've got that track on an old compilation album of film music um, from the 80s, but I've never seen the album. So um, if anybody's listening from record companies, <laughs> we'd love a copy. And you went to a BFI screening the other week. Can you tell us a bit about that? Oh, I did. It was great. It was um, so uh, the film has been re-released again for the anniversary, which will I think will now be the fortieth anniversary. I think. Mm, yeah. yeah. So the, yeah, there was a there was a special um, screening 
at the the, the Glasgow Film Theatre, hosted by the BFI in Glasgow, funnily enough. And it, I mean, it looks incredible. I've I've never actually sat and watched a film where there was so much warmth from the audience, but also the audience they knew every line, they knew every yeah. every move, and you could sense that. But the great thing was that there was cast members there for Q and A afterwards, so it was it was proper kind of pinch yourself moment. Um, so John Gordon Sinclair was there, and Claire Grogan was there, and Rab Buchanan, who plays Andy, was there. Um, so it was it was just fabulous, um, and uh, you get the impression that they still absolutely love that time that they had together as a unit because, you know, a lot of them had come through the Glasgow Youth Theatre um, from Bill Forsyth had found them and, you know, they, they gelled. A lot of them had been in Bill's earlier film, That Sinking Feeling, as well. So they'd come through. But, you know, for 40 years later, you know, still to be talking about it so warmly, it, it was just, it, yeah, it was a it was a really magical evening. Did you have pictures of any of the cast on your wall when you were growing up, Ian, by any chance? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, but um, looking back now, they were probably scattered across the copies of Smash Hits, though, I think, to be honest. Um, And yeah, I mean, publicly say, like like most men of a certain age, um, complete fixation with Clue Grogan um just, yeah. you know and I think looking back now I probably became aware of Claire Grogan through Altered Images first um probably through those early kind of 80s top of the pops and then made the connection later on um and it's 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 interesting watching the film back because by this point when the film was released Claire, Claire Grogan's pop career had already started Mm, yeah, she doesn't look like the pop star Claire Rogan in the film. Obviously, do you know? But, yes, um, having been in the same cinema as of weeks ago, it was I was I was thrown right back to those smash hits days. Well, a lovely link to a film uh, that's set in a high school from around this time, which is Sixteen Candles, uh, is that in a very early scene in Sixteen Candles, you see Molly Ringwald sitting boredly at her desk. And um, she's meant to be doing her work and she's filling out some questionnaire about who she's got a crush on instead. And the soundtrack in the background in that scene is Altered Images' Happy Birthday. Oh, so, I didn't know yeah. that. Oh. Yeah, it's a nice little link. So. Brilliant. So maybe John Hughes was watching the work of Bill's Fourth Side. I wouldn't be surprised at all. Uh, no, no, not at all. Not at all. And again, that, that that's something that the cast talk about or talked about in, in that Q&A was the legacy of the film and how mm. far reaching it has actually gone because um, you often think it is very much a kind of very much a Scottish UK type of sense of humor, but it did travel. And I think, you know, um, it had that legacy after the cinema release. Um, yeah, I've got absolutely no doubt John Hughes seen it. I wonder if he saw the version where the accents were redubbed. Yeah, I was wondering if you were going to mention that, Rich. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, yeah, I've only I've I've not watched it all the way through. It's on the, it's on the DVD edition I've got. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. I've never watched it all the way through, but it is quite hilarious. It's a bit like remember you used to watch um, all those old kind of kids shows on BBC where they would dub them. Yeah, um, yeah, you know, I'm thinking like Heidi and all, all those. <laughs> yes, yes. It was a bit like that, and uh, it was yeah. It's not. It's not an easy watch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Rich, I think that you could maybe speak a bit to uh, the depiction of 
in this of a teenage boy in love or teenage <laughs> teenage boys in love because you know this is something you'll know more about than I do so funny when you look at and you know a lot of the films we've talked about where they've been that kind of guy who's got a crush and the way it's depicted and, and you know obviously in, in some of the scenes here it is quite modern thinking you know and we're talking about to shoehorn onto another recent topic you know women's football um and it was quite forward thinking in that in that regard and to to have that as the kind of call it the um the the mechanism to to get them together but having that crush and i think that the very clever thing about it is obviously dorothy to a an awkward gangly lanky guy is like a a goddess and especially she plays football as well i mean wow what what a combination but that awkwardness around him and you know the fact that he goes he has the conversation and you know whenever you mention this film on social media someone will come back and say bella bella and (laughs) it's the whole thing about oh i'm going to go and learn the language that she speaks to try and impress her and do all this kind of stuff i mean it's been parodied from american pie to the in-betweeners and everything else in between but it is quite accurate i think the way that gregory's got this little network you know he's got his friends uh, and his sister as well which you can talk about because that's a parallel that's come up and, and other things we've we've discussed but um i think the way that it's portrayed and i think his awkwardness around it and the fact that they've managed at the end of the film i say jumping around a little bit that he's obviously disappointed that dorothy hasn't turned up for the date but like on bullseye you know they bring out the speedboat and here's what you could have won <laughs> yeah he's ended up with claire grogan and you kind of think that's not bad and he's come away winning so um yeah. I mean yeah that's the unrealistic bit I guess but um but even so I think yeah the the way it's been written and the way John Gordon Sinclair's portrayed it I mean he's so funny because yeah. looking back now I mean my I mean I'd say my my family half my family is Scottish and um a lot of my memories of certainly the haircuts and the fashions were like most people either pop music or football football stickers so you get his haircut which you know in 2023 as we're recording this looks like something that no one could ever imagine. And yet you kind of think, <laughs> wow, it, it makes it work. You know, I've seen those on, on the sort of Scottish 82 squad, I think. But um, the way the way they've done it, and I think it, it's a difficult one to pull off in a way that you feel like you're still rooting for him. Mm. He's sympathetic. You know, th- he does some weird stuff as well. In you know, But again, it was the 80s. And I think it, it just manages to, to tread it very well because it's very difficult to get right. I too was also once a teenage boy, and you know those th- those themes. You know, you mentioned earlier films like American Pie and any any one of the John Hughes films, or or even the Inbetweeners. I think was mentioned as well. They haven't changed. You know that that awkwardness um, of the teenage boys. I think particularly something like the Inbetweeners has a lot to to thank a film that Gregory's Girl for. So yeah, no, I, I think those themes and you know that kind of dawning awareness that girls run the uh, the world basically <laughs> and, <I> love that. <laughs> and uh, you know and you know the sooner we come to realize that you know the better which is obviously the kind of central theme of of what Gregory's girl is yes it's it's really quite striking in terms of how it manages to make that point while not doing too much sugarcoating of the adolescent boy Mm. experience. Because I do feel about, because sometimes movies that have teenage boys acting up a bit or, you know, maybe being a bit lustful, shall we say, 
these days come in for a bit of hard time on the basis of that. But mm. you have to reflect life as it is, if you know what I mean. There's no point in pretending that teenage boys aren't, or a lot of them aren't going to have some of those instincts. So yeah. that needs to be in there if you're going to have something that rings true to people, I think, about the yeah. school experience. So. I think as well, I mean, thinking about the character of Gregory, you know, there's almost a conveyor belt element to the film in that he's just basically moving through the film, you know, he's not, not in a passive way, if that makes mm. sense, but, you know, in so many ways, he isn't the master of his own fate in this film. Everything is dictated for him. And, you know, it's, um, there's just that kind of element of it, you know, even, even his approach to school and all of these types of things, you know, um, it's, he's, He's he's taken through that film by all the female characters. I uh, love the can you drive? No, but it runs in the family. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you know? It's, yes. It's um yeah, and it's um I mean I th- I think of, you know, that kind of scene where he's getting ready for school and school's obviously already started and he's working his way through the house using all these like tin openers and electric toothbrushes <laughs> and all these kind of things, making himself a cocktail before he goes to school, you know. Completely blissfully unaware of the world you know it's just you know and then of course he's crossing the playgrounds and the teachers are all watching him Um, that's such a good bit of physical comedy from John Gooden Sinclair that bit I think is fantastic he he talked about that he's I think he's mentioned it before in interviews as well that um in the lead up to the film Bill Forsyth took him to again uh, the Glasgow Film Theatre um to watch some um French cinema and oh. and basically had said, you know, look at look at the physicality of how this works. You know, the language isn't isn't an issue, but look at that, and that that was incorporated into that scene. So you know, he said, use that physical awareness of your body, and of course, he is he is you know tall, John Gordon Sinclair, um, and you know that kind of teenage growth element. You know, it's just this gangly figure. Basically, I think he's kind of dancing across the, you know, the uh, the football pitch, um, and it's just, it's just there's something so unassuming about Gregory, and it's you know even the fact that obviously Claire Grogan's character had been aware of him in the film, you know, that's that's obviously you know, and it's the whole idea, you know, spoiler alert, the whole idea that basically Claire Grogan and Dee Hepburn are all set yeah. up on a date, you know. And it's so it's just it's just wonderful. I, I just like the idea of and the scene of them in, in basically in cahoots over the over the Bunsen burners and the sulfuric acid. It's like engineering this whole scenario because again, like you said, he's he is naive, but but then Claire Grogan's character does, you know, register this and she says she you know, what do you think about Gregory? And, you know, so this isn't like a random thing. And I mean it is very the ending, the, the way that they engineer it all, it is very clever. And I think the way that they manage to do it in a way where he's not crestfallen enough to be crushed by it all. And there's enough intrigue there for him to kind of go, oh, I'll go along with this and, mm. and everything. And you ultimately think that this is what should have happened all along. And you feel like, yeah, this is how it should go. Yeah. He reminds me a little bit of uh, a kind of 80s Bertie Wooster, but without the lavish mm. lifestyle. Yeah, it's got that yeah. kind of persona. Why do you think that Clegg Rogan's character likes him? As a teenage boy, I as I was, I have no idea why girls ever find teenage boys attractive. <laughs> um, but um, I, I don't know. I mean, there is that wonderful naivety 
um, as Rich says about about Gregory's character. You know that that kind of you know, um, and he and he does have an incredibly positive outlook on life. Yes, yes. Yeah, um, you know the fact that he thinks he can just crash into Italian, you know, <laughs> and uh, and pick up the language, or you know, the football will always be fine. You know, the team will always be great. All of these things, um, or the fact that you know he never actually seems to attend any classes in the film at all. So I don't know how his school career is going. You know, there's that that kind of wonderful naive positivity, um, which I have to say, growing up in the west of Scotland in the eighties, wasn't abundant. Mm. Um, do you know? Um, yeah. But it, but but it was there, and um, for me as well, I was can you know relate to that early eighties time. Maybe it's just sugar coated now with you know nostalgia but it was an incredibly positive time for us growing up I mean it wasn't societally in Scotland there was still a lot of unemployment there was a lot of poverty there was you know all these types of things but looking back well obviously the pop charts were full of pop um you know Scotland at least had a chance of getting to a world cup on a few occasions never did anything when they got there but there was there was a lot there and you know have to mention here as well the 1982 world cup song we have a dream (laughs) (laughs) which um you know because scotland always thinks they're going to win the world cup anyway but you've got john gordon sinclair on there and that was you know still within the kind of afterglow of the film it just worked incredibly well you know and he does ham it up on top of the pops brilliantly (laughs) i awoke in the night with a fever and the sky was the darkest blue Still small voice was calling to me. And your country is leading you. I, I just like that. And away, away in the distance, I can just make out this ball coming in from the left. And I'm starting to run, to run like hell. And the voice is getting louder and louder and louder. I see. I'm my my main memory because I didn't see this again like like Cat until a bit later on. And my. Mm-hmm main sort of knowledge of John Gordon Sinclair was, I think he was like a regular on those kind of panel game shows like Celebrity Squares. Mm. And it was always Gregory's Girl star, John Gordon Sinclair. They had to sort of caveat that at the beginning. But um, but yeah, I mean, that, that was the thing. And I mean, like, you know, he had that sense of optimism. He was also a Partick Thistle supporter. So, yeah. you know, he had to have it. Yeah, but, um, like, like you said, you know, he, he, he wasn't negative in any way. He was on the, you know, he was on the periphery of the, the perv stuff you know the, the <laughs> photo, I mean he was there he was party to it but you know and the, the selling of the photos of of Dorothy from the toilet cubicles and the, the whole commerce operation it was like a Turkish bazaar in there you know <laughs> buying marzipan out of the out of trap too that's very weird. like the 16 candles underpants moment isn't it <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah it's a real trend of that yeah. kind of thing going on and again he, like you say he floats with this film but he's he has involvements he has relationships he has conversations with everyone you know, he isn't a loner he isn't one of these kind of kids who's the bully or the bullied he's very much kind of gets along with most people and I think you know that that that's kind of his charm and I think because it's 
misplaced confidence or whatever, but people still find that attractive in some way, whether it's romantic or not. But I mean, people like to be around him uh, and whether it's his little mate Andy sort of hassling him while he's in goal or you know, inviting his friends around and talking about pastries and things like that. But it still shows what a kind of magnetic personality he was, even though from the outside he did look Bambi on ice, really. Yeah. I find it interesting comparing it to a film that we covered on this podcast recently, 500 Days of Summer, mm. because in this one it's actually when you watch it carefully you realize that even though he's got a crush on this girl and he doesn't know whether she returns that affection it's made clear to the audience that this is a character who is whether or not the person you know is is showing him attention he is actually nice to girls and he isn't you know someone that's going to turn aggressive because you know his little sister makes the comment of saying when everyone else wasn't nice to their little sisters you were nice to me Mm. and when his friend is asking um him about why Dorothy is on the football team he's saying she's good watch her she can move it's great it's modern it's great for her to be on the team so he's really making that case and it's not all about him it's about her ability and then even though I completely agree that it feels as if he's floating through the film Mm. on the other hand there is that moment where he summons up the courage to ask Dorothy out on a date which I think for all of us if we kind of remember what it was like to be a teenager to have a crush on someone we kind of know how incredibly nerve-wracking that can be Mm. and to break through to the other side and you're able to actually summon up the nerve to ask which does lead to him maybe not going on a date with her, but going out on the date with the girl that he's meant to go on the date with, means that he does actually have more agency than one might first think in Mm. his own story. Because if he hadn't have asked her, he wouldn't have ended up on that date. And um, yeah, and when we were watching 500 Days of Summer, the protagonist of that, I think she does all the steering and he never manages to summon up that courage. But he's, he does get quite nasty if he feels as if she's not sort of attending to him enough or kind of returning his affection. So in that sense, as a male protagonist, I think Gregory dates really well. One thing that I always go back to, and it was really it was really magnified again watching it recently, is the relationship between Gregory and his sister Madeline. Yeah. Because that, you know, Madeline is still at primary school, so there's probably a bit of an age gap, but she's almost his guiding light. In some ways, you know, and also, you know, how when you think apart from the kind of odd viewing of a teacher in the film, there's hardly any adult presence at all. And the adults often are portrayed by the younger children in the film. So you've got Madeline, you've got Madeline's, in inverted commas, boyfriend as well, who there's a fantastic scene where he turns up at the door looking for Madeline and she's not in. Um, I love that scene. (laughs) Possibly my favourite scene. And it's like this small man shaking Gregory's hand. Hello, Gregory. It's it's an incredible performance from him. How is he managing to convey a kind of 40-something neighbour with ulterior motives? How is he doing this? Um, And Gregory more or less tells him to to kind of politely go away and go and break some windows or something, you know. (laughs) Do whatever you should be doing at your age. Um, But there's that that scene where um, Gregory and Madeline go to the cafe in that wonderful 80s shopping centre, which I could actually just talk about that on its own for two hours, but (laughs) it's just all the beige and brown and stuff. It's just incredible. But um, they're sitting there and um, Madeline's asking all these questions, you know, do you dream about her? You know, that kind of stuff. You know, that means you love her. And then then there's this wonderful line where John Gordon Sinclair says, 
what do you dream about? And she says, I'm only 10. I just dream about ice cream. <laughs> and you just think that is just, it's such a wonderful observation yeah. of that innocence, but that relationship. And it's a wonderfully warm relationship between the two of them. That's the, the other link with 500 days of summer, isn't it? Like, I think yes. there was a similar amount of, of screen time and his sister. And I think I described her as being like a sort of little Yoda type character. Yeah, sort of is this film there. where that that kind of trope started because I think it I think it might be because that caught on I think with quite mm. a few rom-coms where they'd have a male protagonist with a very wise either kind of younger female friend or, or little sister who would who would be quite precocious in that way I think it might have started here I mean judging by the music and the trends of, of that film 500 days of summer you'd imagine the director has probably seen this you dream about her that means you love her the one that you have the dreams about that counts. That moment when, when Gregory asks Dorothy out, I mean, I still get heart palpitations watching that because I would never have put myself in that position. Do you know, I, I just I just couldn't have done it, you know? Oh, yeah, it's terrifying. I mean, it's absolutely terrifying, you know, that thought of rejection. But she, but it's but she's so blasé about it. Okay, that's fine. And Gregory <laughs> does that whole, no, come on, stop, you know, stop fooling around. <laughs> and she's like, no, that's fine. And then she basically puts him on the spot and says, look, if you don't want to... You know, yeah, which is again a wonderfully Scottish thing that women are very good at doing. When you jump to that scene when he's waiting at the clock, and he's and he's obviously waiting, and he's got Steve's white jacket on, which is never mentioned again. You see it earlier on, Gregory asking for it, and he's he's always saying no, you can't have it, and then he's just there with it on. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's brilliant. You know, he's obviously you know he's got the date, so it's there. But there's that wonderful, you know, he's waiting, and it's it's getting later and later and stuff. And you can just, there's no sound apart from the clock ticking. And then you hear the high heels. And, and this is where I'm going to, I'm going to have to think, but I don't know who it is that meets him first. It's uh, Carol first. It's Carol first. Oh, yeah, it's well Carol done. first. Yeah. It's just that wonderful matter of fact way about, you know, and he says, oh, I was waiting for Dorothy. And Carol says, oh, she's not coming. <laughs> and that's <laughs> it. Yeah. And he goes, all right, okay. <laughs> and that masks so much emotion in that, you know, it, it's just it's just not there. It's like, oh, she's not coming. That, that's just, and I don't know, that that probably could translate into other, like, kind of dialogue in, you know, in, in a film based in England or in London or America or whatever. But yeah. there's something wonderful about that complete non-plussed blaziness. <laughs> but I think that, that follows up as well when, um, after the scene where she gets changed in the phone box, like... Mm. A, sort of Scottish Superman and she comes out and he's being quite, you know, I'm going to go home and all that. And she says something that again, you know, I can imagine one of my Scottish cousins or something saying, you know, Oh, my dad's like you, but you know, he's got an excuse. He's old. And he's That's a prick. Right. And he's a prick. <laughs> yeah. He's a prick, but he's old. And it's, yeah. just, and it's just wonderful. The actress that plays Carol, who I'm just now going to look up very, very quickly, Carolyn Guthrie. She was at the Q and A and she hasn't changed at all. <laughs> She just completely hasn't changed. And I don't think she went in to do a lot of acting work afterwards. I think like a lot of the cast, this was one of their only few things. But to have that part on your CV, it is a wonderful five, ten minutes of the film when basically she just, you know, begins the kind of charade, you know, and kind of takes Gregory through. It's a wonderful, wonderful role. Look, I've got to go home. I really enjoyed the walk. You go that way, right? And I'll go this way. See ya. Gregory, I thought we were going for chips. Chips. Okay. There you are. If 
50 pains. Get lots of chips with that. Bye. Don't be stupid. Come on, you're worse than my dad and he's old. At least he's getting excuse for being a prick. Okay, okay. Put your coat on. Oh, no. Look, come on, Gregory. All I'm asking for is a walk up to the chip shop. I've got a date. I'm going away. I've just got a funny feeling that something nice might happen up there. Before, I hadn't really spotted the fact that they're reading A Midsummer Night's Dream in that yes. class scene and that it's all sort of playing on those kind of themes of like waking up and you're with one person, going back to sleep and you're with the person that you're meant to be with and, and the, just the that feeling about it all. And and even, yeah, I was thinking, like even something like Romeo and Juliet starts off with Romeo in love with someone completely different to Juliet. The themes of it will will never, ever go away. And I think, you know, the fact that we've identified so many different films or TV themes, whatever, that have yeah. covered that, it's it's completely universal. It's it's housed in this wonderful time capsule of 1980. <laughs> I think that's it. That's completely true. What an era it was. Oh. It's so it's so influential as a as a film. Like in the bit where um the guys, Andy and Charlie, uh talking about going to Caracas. Uh <laughs> I was thinking this is this is reminding me of something. What's this reminding me of? And I was thinking it's something that we've done on the podcast in recent years. And then I realised that it was reminding me of Colin in Love Actually, mm. talking to his mate about how in America everyone loves uh, English guys. And I thought, yeah, that's what it is. It's there, there are bits of this that, even though it's a very different setting, that are reminding me of Richard Curtis rom-coms for some reason. And then sure enough, I, I looked it up and Richard Curtis has cited Gregory's Girls, one of his major influences when it's come to um, making rom-coms. So. There you go. But, I mean, we, we had a similar conversation. I was probably 16 or 17 at school when there was an, whether it was true or an urban myth, where Nottingham University had five women to every guy. So everyone should apply to go to Nottingham University, so of course everyone did. Yes, that is exactly how guys think. You know, and <laughs> yeah. the, the, the scene where Andy goes over and, and talks to the girls uh, at lunch, and it's like, right, what's a good conversation starter? How yeah. do they make veal? That's <laughs> brilliant. I know. Charming, charming. Rab Buchanan, who plays Andy, is, I think, almost a master. It's like a master class of, of not acting but mm. acting at the same time. And yeah. I don't know about you, Rich, but I can think of at least half a dozen Andys that I knew in school. They're like um, sidekicks, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. And then you've got Charlie who says nothing at all, all the way through the film. And, um, and and they keep popping up and they just can't work out how Gregory has now been seen with three different girls in the space of like an hour. Oh, there's something in the air. There's something in the air, Charlie. I can feel it. I can feel it, <laughs> says Andy. It's definitely the night for it, he says, you know. And this is just, and, you know, all the time they're just eating chips. And again, you know, it's f- for me watching it, and, you know, I said at the beginning, there's that documentary element to it. The housing estate we lived in was like that. It was a kind of new town look, you know, where they had these mm. deliberately set up communal areas where they thought people would congregate and be a community. And they didn't. It just basically became a place where kids fought, like couples would go and snog or whatever, you know, that kind of stuff. In the background, watching it again, Bill Forsyth absolutely captures that, that summer evening. And, you know, there's there's folk cutting their grass and there's people just wandering about. There's there's like kids on trikes falling over. It's it's just wonderful the way that plays such a big part in the whole in the whole film. Andy and Charlie, do you think, Rich, that they're a bit like um Jay and Silent Bob? 
(laughs) (laughs) They're always there. They're kind of decorative in some ways, but they do kind of make those contributions. And of course, then at the end, when Charlie corrects him about the spelling of Caracas, (laughs) it's just like, why didn't you say anything earlier? It's just that kind of shrug of the shoulders. (laughs) As if that would have made a difference to the cars going along the dual carriageway. Um, oh, Caracas. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, know, I know. So w- when we did the Q&A, John Gordon Sinclair was there, Clig Rogan was there, Rab Buchanan was there, and Douglas Sanakin, who plays Billy, the window cleaner, was there oh, as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. Which was fabulous as well. But they were sitting there, and before they started, it was a guy from the BFI that was doing the interview. Rab Buchanan said, he says, he says, wait, 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 he says, there's somebody else in the audience. And we all kind of turned and looked. And it was Charlie. It was, oh, it's, it's a guy called Graham Thompson, who I don't think did a lot of acting at all uh, afterwards. He'd been part of the Glasgow Youth Theatre that Bill Forsyth had gone into. But they called him out. And you know what? The round of applause that guy got was probably bigger than, like, Claire Grogan. Or, <laughs> it, was, it was like, oh, my goodness, there's Charlie. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he spoke, which was even better as well. Yeah. And he, he said, um, you know, I'll give you an exclusive for the podcast. Oh, fantastic. That um, a lot of the scenes between him and Andy on their own, he had had no sight of the script whatsoever. So he didn't know what Rab Buchanan was going to say in a lot of those lines. Oh, wow. So you watch it back again. And you know that kind of genuine kind of look on his face of kind of startledness? That was genuine because he, he hadn't seen Andy's script at all. So, so it does make it, you know, and you wonder about those scenes when they were sitting having their having their lunch and talking about veal, if that was one <laughs> of them potentially, do you know? And if if that's the case, then complete props to Graham Thompson for keeping a straight face. Yeah, because if you're sitting there at lunch and your mate starts trying to chat up girls talking about how veal's made, it's, your face yeah. is going to kind of just turn and look at him like you what? Oh, it's excellent sort of non-verbal performance from him, I'd say. So great. Oh, but th- there's a lot of that in the film. There's a lot of, you know, you know, we haven't mentioned the penguin. <laughs> yeah. right. I haven't mentioned the penguin. It's so great. I haven't mentioned the penguin that just walks about and different teachers direct the penguin in different ways, you know. Um, <laughs> there's Chick Murray, the head teacher, with his piano playing and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, there's tiny wee scenes i was actually sitting in the glasgow film theater laughing waiting for it to come up where a lot of it happens outside you know with the football trials and there's one shot where you see in the background before it moves to the main plot um somebody about to do the high jump <laughs> yeah. now, see, even the fact i've said that rich you know you know that scene right yeah. where there's like a, a teacher basically explaining silently, you know, again, that silent cinema type thing, you know, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. And the guy then just runs at it and basically just runs right through the pole. (laughs) (laughs) It's, you know, and again, you know, someone who didn't have that sporting prowess at school like me, I get that, you know, you were sent out onto pitches to run round it 10 times and, you know, or to do some sort of crazy sport like high jump, which let's face it, none of us did. It's all of those wee elements Mm. that actually make, you know, people do remember the Bella Bellas and the football and all that kind of stuff. But actually, it's those observations of what life was like at school and growing up and all of that and what that looked like in that setting. Um, yeah, not not a minute is wasted. You're you're so right about things like um, the headmaster playing piano and the penguin, and I I can remember being so struck by it when I first saw it, and um, 
I watched Spinal Tap again the other night mm. and that's another film from around this time. Both of them are so short, these films, but not a second is wasted and, and no character is brought in, you know, it can kind of flash to a character that you'll never see again, but they're saying something and it'll be funny and it'll take you by surprise and it'll be inventive. Mm. And I think, yeah, something like Gregory's Girls, such a sort of masterclass in how to use time you know you don't need very much money but if someone has written a fantastic script and then everyone as you say you can combine it with some of these um silent bits of comedy and just these little these little asides and yeah you just use your time so well it's yeah it's incredible really i think the chemistry between the cast you know they spoke about that again um but it absolutely shines through and the fact that a lot of them did work together in that glasgow youth theater coming through and are in that sinking feeling the year before and you can see that kind of gel because I think that's what helps to bring the dialogue alive is that it never feels forced Mm -hmm. it always feels incredibly genuine and I think having read up on it um I think Bill Forsyth has to take a lot of credit for that because he gave people space to let the characters breathe a bit in a what 90 92 minutes, they mm. cram so much in. And, and it doesn't feel like the film takes place over more than, what, maybe a week-ish, no. something like that. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, a week in you know, Scottish summer. It's, um, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of like, it's, it's just that sort of perfect little, it's not too sprawling, it's exactly what it's meant to be. Um, yeah. and, and when, at the end, with the, the multiple dates, and he goes from, from Carol to Margot to, to Susan. And even Margot doesn't have an awful lot to say, but she has a couple of good lines in it. It's like, well, I'll buy the chips if you keep making jokes. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, Gregory's jokes are dad jokes. Um, I think the, the one where Dorothy was asking to practice her penalties and he said, oh, I'll bring my compass. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, okay, brilliant. Yeah, we saw that one coming. One thing that I really like about it is how it and maybe this is why it makes you feel so good to watch it, is it seems to be a film that's uh, celebrating people's passions. And that can be anything from like your passion for another person to passion for football, passion mm-hmm. for baking. And yep. that it just feels sort of so lovely that each character has something that they feel quite excited about in life. Passion for photography as well. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not going to go to the dark room, but I... I'd forgotten about I'd forgotten about um when um Gregory meets uh, the photographer once he's actually out on the date at the end and he's got his wee assistant with him who looks exactly the same as him but younger and they just do the whole you know talk about the passion for numbers and why are boys yes. always obsessed with numbers yeah you know and and that that that's a lovely tie tie round you know at that point it kind of brings that whole thing back from the beginning of the film when they're obviously doing their slightly voyeuristic appreciation of the nurse. That's probably the best way to describe it. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and and they say, oh, you know, we're, go- we're going back to do the experiment again later, Gregory, would you like to join us? And, of course, at that point, Gregory decides, no, he's got something better to do. Um, but, because, uh, but because Susan doesn't know what he's talking about, it's like, oh, yeah, well, I, I'm interested to see the results. And, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and it, so it's, it's that whole thing going on. But, you know, it's that... Um, I remember doing... Um, a photography module at school um, would have been about 88, 89, just when I was finishing up. That way when you do modules at school to fill in your time when you're basically doing nothing else. And and I did a photography module and, and, it, and it was that dark room. So watching it back, I can still smell those chemicals 
um, <laughs> and, and, and that smell, you know, and it was it was just you know something that you know again they were attempting to turn all these all these teenage boys into photographers in the west of Scotland. Don't think it happened, um, but uh, but yeah, it's just it's that kind of lovely moment. Again, watching it back recently, when it moves to the whole date bit at the end, I actually didn't want that to stop because it's mm. just the flow of it in what is maybe about 15 minutes of the film. You know, the way we go from Carol to Margot to Susan. I mean, the dialogue is just incredible. Yeah. But just the way it moves along. And once they get to the park as well, because that's that that's another thing, you know, are you going up the park? You know, the, if, every town had somewhere where people went, you know. Um, but once they get there, it's almost like, it's like magic, the sun setting. And just that kind of soundtrack from Colin Tully comes back in again. The silhouettes and you know them walking over the hill. You know John uh, John Gordon Sinclair and Claire Rogan walking over the hill together and stuff. It's just you know you think I don't want this to end. I want to be back there. Yeah, and I I think that he really comes into his own there as well as a as, as the kind of romantic lead in that he has this. You know he's shy and he's nervous and you can tell that, but he's also playful and the I've always loved the way he says that you know when he starts the thing of dancing and he says to join in when you feel confident enough and I was so that's such a sort of lovely touch you know like he's not being pushy he's not sort of being overly performative on this day he's just sort of trying to initiate stuff that will be fun and interesting and won't make the two of them feel too self-conscious and she's kind of been coaxing him out of his shell giving him little boosts to get him you know obviously he's still very confused by the whole situation but I think the fact that she's gently nudging him along and I guess it's the the confidence of a what 15 16 year old girl compared to a 15 16 year old boy we're sitting there going okay well and and you can see it happening he's growing into the date which sounds a weird expression but no no absolutely all the talk about numbers I mean we talked about that when we talked about fever pitch didn't we and the flatmate talking about I was obsessed with my boyfriend's batting average because he kept talking about numbers. Yes, um, yeah. and there's things like that. You know, I'm I'm guilty of it myself. But but yeah, all these stuff, you know, and this these are coming like words coming out of the mouth of almost babes. You know, it's, it it does ring true of a lot of other stuff, and you know that the fact that it's been repeated so much in films, it's obviously true of life too. Yes, and the moment where she says to him, oh, I'm glad that you've stopped kissing me like I'm your auntie, yes. also shows you that he isn't, again, he's not being pushy. She's sort of gently encouraging him, you know, so, um, and that's also really sweet, I think. And and he says, what's my auntie going to see when I kiss her at Christmas? <laughs> <laughs> Which is that, you know, and, and again, it, it is just those wonderful wee moments that everybody can recognise, you know. Yeah. Um, And then there's the course, obviously, you know, one more number, 11, home by, which is, I mean, it's just, oh, so just good. fabulous. So good. I mean, that was something, because I listened to an interview with Bill Fossett and he was saying that it was pretty fully formed, the the, the script before they started playing. So unlike some of these other sort of very naturalistic comedies that one might watch, uh, it wasn't, um, the dialogue wasn't really improvised or anything like that he'd he'd got it down I think is that is that right Ian as far as you know yeah, yeah. oh yeah yeah I mean it, it it came but again a lot of that came from Bill Forsyth spending time at the Glasgow Youth Theatre yeah um and you know working it because I think originally I know it wasn't John Gordon Sinclair that was actually set up I think it was um 
the character that plays uh, the window cleaner, whose name mm-hmm. currently escapes me. It was uh, Billy. Was, yeah, Billy. I think he was originally set up, and and then it shifted. But it was the time that Bill Forsyth took getting to know the characters, and it was basically, you know, that was where the script was formulating all the way through. So by the time they came to film it, it was almost fully formed. I mean that that is in in its own way pretty extraordinary as well because it feels so organic. It's completely universal themes. Whilst there may be that big eighties element to the film itself, those themes never go away. It's an incredibly warm, fond place to go back to. Um, I wouldn't say because it reminds me of high school because you know I certainly didn't have that successful romance run <laughs> in high school <laughs> that um, that John Gordon Sinclair has as Gregory. You know, but it just it just takes you back, I suppose, to a time of innocence. And a yeah. time when there wasn't the worries and the concerns of everything else, you know, um, society in the early eighties might have been may have been crumbling, you know. But as kids and teenagers, we weren't, and it just kind of takes you back. Do you remember watching Life on Mars, the the John Sim? Oh yeah, that was thing? a documentary, wasn't it? Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was it was you know to me now there's almost an element of that watching Gregory's Girl. It's it's a time that I can remember. You know, and I think they said this. The cast said that that actually, when you watch it back, the film, the sun's always shining. It always looks as if it was summer. Now, don't get me wrong; it wasn't always like that. <laughs> but they said that 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 they, they they had to film a lot of it very quickly over a certain number of days because the weather wasn't great that summer in 1980. So um, there was actually a lot of days when they couldn't film just because it was so wet as well. You know, but it's just such a a wonderfully nostalgic film. And, you know, you mentioned the length of the film as well. A great example of how you don't need a long film to make a perfect film. That that it almost feels as if that discipline to mm. f- fit it into that length of time um, really plays in its favour, actually. Yeah. Reverse up to the ball. Catch it on the bounce with your fleshy part. Drop down low on it. And there it is. But you don't waste time. You're up on your feet. You turn... Steady. And it's yours. Jesu Bambino, that's really nifty. Right, you try it. Now walk you through it. Ready? Reverse. Reverse. Down. Down. Trap. Trap. Up. Up. Turn. Turn. Steady. Steady. Kick. Kick. Reverse. Down. Trap. Up. Turn. Steady. Kick. Even the scene where the manager comes in to give her a couple of tips. He does knock. But then he comes in and they do this, this kind of move around the cushioning of the ball and it becomes a dance. Yes. Interesting to see that because, again, we've already had the top topic of conversation that you know, the teachers at the school are all massive perverts. But mm-hmm. we've also got this bit where they're in sync because she's essentially their best player. And yeah. he's obviously got some ideas. He's like, yeah, maybe I'm too good a coach at this level, that kind of stuff. You know, and he's taking it all very seriously because most of the kids playing football really look like they don't care and they're being almost conscripted into the football team. You know, she's very impressive. And I think um, the fact that she shows the dedication, you know, we, we open and close the film with her jogging. It's really unusual in the films that we've watched for this podcast and, and so on and so forth for romantic comedies if they give you, you know, or the, the kind of equal romantic lead being a woman and then show her being preoccupied with something that isn't about getting together with someone. That's, that's mm. still really unusual in, in movies. So I, I love that as a little touch that they put in at the end. So. Dorothy is by far the best footballer in the film. <laughs> yeah. 
there's no there's no patronizing element to oh look we've got a girl on the football team mm. and it, it goes back to that character of Phil Menzies who's the coach um Jake Darcy plays that wonderfully role you know that you know um are you growing a mustache you know when he says to him you know in the in the start you know <laughs> his pencil mustache there's a modern element to that when you think about it and it was 40 odd years ago but there's no kind of patronizing element to the football and I think Dee Hepburn did I think she trained with Partick Thistle um, which is yeah. an in joke in Scotland, anyway. Obviously, but you know, um, <laughs> you know, managed to come out of part of this with some football skills. But that's handled very, very well throughout the film. Um, that it's not, you know, patronising. Go back to something like Fever Pitch, for example, as well. You know, that kind of, you know, the Ruth Gemmell character. There's a there's a different dynamic in that. You know, even think of the scenes in the changing room when Dorothy comes in and Gregory's frantically trying to cover up his nipples. You know. <laughs> wonderful scene you know you know Dorothy is completely nonplussed about that there's no additional humor added in there to make it look slapsticky it's very matter of fact you know she's a girl but she's the best footballer and she wants to be on the team and 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 that's very matter of fact um and it's it kind of creates some yeah some 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 very some very good role models in there I think as well is the fact that because we have the scene where the guys are following Billy around, asking him about his exploits as a window cleaner. And this is mm. not long after the whole Confessions of a film sequence. Yeah. And they're talking about, was it Tits Bum, Fanny the Lot? Mm. And then Dorothy's in the changing room of Gregory. I mean, we, we know full well she does not go off to the common room at lunchtime and start talking about what she's seen in the boys' changing rooms. You know, there's still that element of you know, these boys are following this older guy around because he's been there and done it 11 times. And he's seen as this kind of God to them. Whereas, you know, for, for the girls, it's just life goes on. There was two things that, that, that Claire Grogan in particular said. And one was that, you know, they've, they've done these anniversary events for Gregory's Girl a few times now. So the last one was the 30th anniversary. And she said that this one felt different watching it back now. She felt more emotional watching it because more people have passed away who are involved in the film mm. as they get further and further away from obviously 1981 when it was released, you know? Yeah. And she said that they're now starting to feel that, that, you know, she was watching it on, on screen and just saying, you know, oh, there's such and such and there's such and such, you know, people that have passed even in the last decade, you know? And that made her feel kind of very very emotional as well you know um, and you know just just kind of watching it all back she kind of mentioned that and but also the second thing that she mentioned and all the cast mentioned because Bill Forsyth wasn't there and you know he's quite famously now really moved away from you know from the industry and they were all saying what a regret that was you know and you know I think you know Bill Forsyth yeah, I think it became disillusioned by the industry, you know. Um, but basically what they said was, you know, they don't think he really understands how much warmth there is for his films. Um, you know, he knows, people tell him, but they don't really think he, he fully gets how well-received the likes of Sink and Feeling, this local hero, Comfort and Joy... Which I'll happily come back and talk about another time if you if you want. Oh yeah, I watched I watched that a couple of months ago. That was <laughs> yeah, you know. But they were just saying that you know, and seemingly I think Bill Forsyth had put in um, some pilot shows to the BBC not so long ago, about kind of ten years or so ago, 
somebody listening will know exactly when that is, so I'll apologise. But he'd put in some pilot shows and they were rejected. And John Gordon Sinclair said, you know, why would anybody want to reject anything that Bill Forsyth did? Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, that obviously just crystallised his need to step away from the industry. Is it your favourite film? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'll do a quick sales pitch for the podcast. When we had Pete Pafidis on um, as a guest, which I still pinch myself at, I have to say, and Pete has a, an amazing affinity with postcard records in the early 80s music and, and, and this film, I think I went on, on record as saying that this is my favourite film of all time. Um, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's a film that can uplift, it can make you laugh, it can make you cry, it can take you back to a happy place. It's got universal themes, it's it's and and it's not too long as well, you know. So it's it ticks all the boxes. Favorite scene, I think, would probably have to be, um, the park lying on the back dancing. Yeah, just Good choice. just because it sums up that that or Madeline in the cafe. But I've talked about that because I think that that says a lot. But that that bit at the end when in the park and the lying on the back and they're dancing and Gregory's going through the numbers. It's 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 the victory lap of the film. It's the film that says actually Gregory has won here, and he hasn't won in the way he thought he was going to win, but it's all worked out perfectly well. And you know at that point everything's going to be okay, and you've got the best sunset as well over the over the Cumbernauld Hills, and the music's there. It's just perfect, and it's just it kind of gives you hope um, that actually teenage boys can win. Oh. Well, that's a lovely, lovely note to wind up on. Um, Ian, do you want to tell us any more about your fabulous podcast and where people can find it? Oh, well, I, I don't normally cut, but seeing as you've given me the chance. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, the podcast is called Back to Now, um, and the idea being that guests come on and they choose, and now that's what I call music compilation album, um, and they don't have to have owned it, but um, the have that opportunity to talk about why it's important to them and take them back to a time. Um, and I suppose very similar to this podcast to kind of think about themes that resonate with us. Thank you so much for coming on, Ian. This has been a really joyous chat and I think I feel very uplifted by it. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much to both of you. It's been, it's been a joy um, coming on and adding Gregory's Girl to the list of all these wonderful films in the podcast series. One might say a comfort and joy. Oh, very oh. good. <laughs> very good. Oh, that's <laughs> perfect, Rich. My work is... Well, as we collect together the leftover marzipan almonds and shrug off our white jackets, we invite you to lie down on the grass and join us for a dance. Though we must warn you, you might end up feeling restless and dizzy. I've been Rich. I've been Ian. Off you go, you small boys. Yeah.